Good evening. It is Tuesday, the 1st of March. It is 9 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, and you are watching Socialist Think Tank's Political Unmuted. My name is Steve Topple. I'm a journalist and broadcaster for The Canary and Bywan News, and I'm very pleased, but um, somewhat strange as well, feeling standing in for John this evening, um, and quite the time to be standing in, actually, when I agreed to do this a few weeks ago. Obviously, the situation in Ukraine wasn't such then. And here we are. Um, before we get going, I want to make one thing explicitly clear from the start. Um, I think it's very important to lay out my personal position on the ongoing war in Ukraine. Um, nothing changes really, does it? Uh, as always, it's the will of a few white men undermining and jeopardizing the peace and security of the rest of us. It's also important to make explicitly clear that there are no good sides and bad sides at all in this conflict. Everyone involved from Putin to Biden to Johnson, they are all bad faith actors. And to take a side in this, apart from the side of the people of Ukraine who are being slaughtered in their hundreds would be wrong. So let's clear that up from the start. However, I'm very pleased to be here still discussing this and we will try and unpick some of the bigger issues surrounding what is going on in that part of the world what's behind Russia's actions, what's going on with NATO and the West, and let's see what we come up with. So, Socialist Think Tank, thank you for having me, and hello, everyone. Hello. Paul, Mark, Jane, Samantha, thank you very much again for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, usually, I know you do on Socialist Think Tank moment of the week. I really don't think that's appropriate um, to do this week and what's going on, going on in the world. So I'd like to start by posing a fairly big question, but it's one that's been dominant across social media today. Um, a lot of the kind of centrist commentators and centrist MPs have been discussing the possibility of a no-fly zone in Ukraine. Bear in mind this comes against the backdrop of currently over 300 civilians have been killed, including 14 children. Um, literally in the past hour before we've come on air, the position is extremely fluid and things are changing extremely rapid, rapidly. We know that the alleged 60 kilometer, kilometer long Russian convoy that's trying to get to Kyiv is not making much progress. We know the International Criminal Court is going to be starting its uh, case on Russia's actions next week, 7th and 8th of March, and NATO are meeting on Friday. Meanwhile, China has said they're getting involved um, and would be willing to mediate in talks. However, hanging over all of this is this constant narrative about a no-fly zone. Do we need to impose a no-fly zone? And MPs like Chris Bryant have come out and said we must do one. A lot of the centrist commentators, I know Dan Hodges has been very vocal on this, that we should have this no-fly zone. And obviously it's been pushed back from other quarters. Boris Johnson was specifically asked this question by a Ukrainian journalist today in a press conference. And he categorically said that a no-fly zone is out of the question on the basis that if one was imposed by the West, that would likely and inadvertently lead to a NATO um, act of aggression in shooting a Russian plane down if it violated it. I mean, this question has been bouncing around and I really want to get everyone's thoughts on this to try and maybe get some perspective and maybe hear different sides of the story. We, we may all be in agreement. I don't know. Let's, let's just see what happens. So should 
NATO and the West impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine to try and de-escalate this situation. Um, Paul, I'm going to come to you first. What are your thoughts on a no-fly zone at this current time? Um, well, obviously, Ukraine have, have come out and asked for a no-fly zone today. And, and I think one of the things that we need to understand there is these people are absolutely desperate for every form of help that they that they can get. And they have been fighting in a way like you're seeing political leaders actually taking up arms and leading by example in a way that, you know, seem to be something of the past. You know, in the past, there would always be generals leading an army, whereas now it seems to be old men uh, with a chip on the shoulder sending young men to die uh, usually. But these are people defending their homes and they're asking for every bit of help, every scrap of help that they can possibly muster. And the no-fly zone for them would make, you know, it would just be a massive gesture to the re- to Russia saying where the, the rest of the world is here to help. The problem is the escalating situation there. So if you do have a no-fly zone in the area, as even Boris Johnson said, as you mentioned, Steve, um, you know, this could end up escalating the situation and we've already had threats of nuclear weapons from from Putin uh, using like escalating the situation, put them on high alert and so on, given following actually comments from Liz Truss, apparently, who had um, who had uh, done something. I'm not quite sure to annoy people to the point where they're saying that they are going to talk about nuclear weapons, whether or not that's true. Who knows? But. Personally, I don't think that they should be imposing a no-fly zone at this point. For a start, who is going to who is going to police that? If the West start to police that, then that is an all-out war between um, between Russia and the West, and that can only be um, an escalating situation, um, a very very terrifying situation. So that's where I personally stand on that, although I have really massive sympathies for the Ukrainian people and understand entirely why they would want that to happen because they're in that situation. But at the moment, they are not a member of NATO, so it is not a NATO attack nation, although they are making moves towards that. There is not necessarily an obligation on those people, although maybe a military pact isn't the only obligation we should have as well we do have an obligation to help people we do have an obligation but that for me that is an obligation to de-escalate rather than escalate a situation so uh, as difficult as it is um i wouldn't be in an agreement with an no-fly zone at the moment i think it is very difficult and it, it, it's such a fluid and complex situation it's difficult to know what is the best course of, course of action there's already com- comments coming in on this um, Mark Rattigan and Janet have both said what would happen if a plane, a Russian plane, went into the no-fly zone. Um, and that is, of course, that is the $64 million question in this situation, because at that point, um, if it did, a, a lot of analysts are saying that we would be obliged to then shoot it down. Um, and and as you pointed out, Paul, where does that leave us? Um, Samantha, what do you think about the no-fly zone situation? Are you in agreement? with Paul that this is a immediate no-go I saw you kind of go like that <laughs> while he was yeah. speaking yeah uh, it's one of those situations where you're just glad that it's not a decision you have to make isn't it because there, like you said at the start you know there, there is often no good guys no no right decisions you know that you 
it's very difficult to wear these things up. And Jonathan in the chat said he agrees with Paul, but he's totally conflicted because you feel like that's a really common sense way to uh, de-escalate. Obviously, we've seen uh, the the uh, accusation is at the moment that the Russians are committing war crimes, dropping cluster bombs on, on residential um, places. And you think, okay... At what point? I understand the whole idea of NATO and the EU and all of that, but at what point do we say sit back and watch war crimes being committed and not do anything about it? Um, so you know, I kind of err towards a no-fly zone, but I'm really not a military strategic <laughs> war crime expert. Um, the the other thing is that that's been dropped in the chat is that there's a, a link to a, a Peter Roborn tweet where he's basically saying it. It's great that we've become such um, such arbiters for for the law and decency in Europe and and hopefully that will go across the the world we seem to have have much looser morals when it comes to different parts of the world and 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 another thing that was in the chat is that people seem to have forgotten that different countries are already dropping bombs on other countries all the time that war happens globally across the world all the time particularly the US dropping bombs on Somalia at the moment so it's it's a hard decision. I err towards a no-flight zone, but I'd need to do more research. Just on that point, I mean, with the, what role do you think, Samantha, the UN should be playing in this? Do you think the UN's currently doing enough? I mean, they, they had a um, meeting today, I believe, on the issue, but it seems that progress with regards to the UN actually doing something concrete is very slow. Obviously, we had the Security Council meeting a few days ago where, where Russia outright vetoed um, the proposal anyway. So, I mean, is, are the UN's hands completely tied in the situation anyway? Well, uh, quite, you know, if they're at the table and they've got a choice, of course, they're going to say, <laughs> we're not, we don't agree with this. Um, and we've heard a lot for, about NATO, we've heard a lot from the EU today, um, which, again, which was very performative, wasn't it? It was sort of, we're really welcoming the idea that Ukraine want to join the EU, but really it's not going to happen. Um, uh, so yes, definitely the UN have been, have been um, neutralised, I think, by uh, Russia's position. Yeah, Radio Jammers just send the comments. Um, UN is stymied due to Russia being permanent member. Ukraine, not a NATO member, slipping arms through eastern slash southern Ukraine borders is all that can be done. Um, Jonathan says, yes, their hands are tied because of nuclear weapons. Samantha's um, hard decisions, hard situations, she says as well. Um, I mean, yeah, it is very complex, as you say, UN's hands are tied. Mark, um, I mean, we're, we're kind of all singing from the same hymn sheet at present with a no-fly zone, um, but Unity News mentioned a, a more of a safe zone, which I, I think is not so much a no-fly zone, but it's where so both parties agree to avoid civilian casualties to, the, to their best of their abilities. It's kind of a, more of an informal, not enforced, but a, a, a agreement where civilian casualties are supposed to be minimised. I mean, is, is more of a safe zone the way forward or as opposed to a no-fly zone do you think mark or is a no-fly zone the answer are you going to differ from what the rest of us have said so far 
Right, I mean, a no-fly zone, what are we talking about? Are we talking about a Russian no-fly zone or everybody no-flying? Because obviously Ukraine has uh, fighters that it's using. I mean, for one of my unsocialist guilty pressures is going to air shows and, and doing some of my photography at them. And unfortunately, one of the Ukraine uh, display team was, was killed earlier last week who used to fly planes over here in, on the season. In, up to 2018 he was shot down because the issue is how do you do it now you can do what's called overflying which is trying to 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 actually force the plane to land the other planes to land but eventually it is going to have to involve either dogfights or missiles in some form to to actually do it but the question is a safe zone does that mean nobody flies who, and who polices it the problem is going to be the UN the UN would have to enforce it, but with Russia as a permanent member of the of, of the Security Council, with with vetoing rights, there is no way that they hold a trump card. That is the end thing. And if we do go a new fly no fly zone, it's got to mean combat, and that and Russia can accept that as an act of war, and there's no other way around that. Okay, so I just want to put in a few more comments. Um, Laura, who's usually here, I know. Um, hello, Laura. She said that the media has a huge part to play in the hierarchy of life worth. Heart goes out to all the people suffering at hands of needless war across the world. We're going to come back to the media's role in this war uh, later on in the programme. Um, yeah, I mean, it is very difficult, as you say. Um, is it just going to be Russian planes? Should it be Ukrainian planes as well? If there is a no-fly zone. Um, Jane, let's let's posit the question, I suppose, that, okay, so a no-fly zone is completely out of the question. Um, so if a no-fly zone is completely out of the question, what on earth is the solution here? Because currently, I mean, we're bombarding Russia and, I mean, even to the extent of Putin himself, bombarding it with sanctions. Its economy is tanking. The ruble is has collapsed in the past hour. Putin's put an order that no Russian can um, send more than $10,000 worth of um, Russian assets out of the country. He's essentially trying to put a ring around what is left of Russia's economy. They've been buying up gold at a rate of knots, um, which has pushed the gold price up. We'll talk about stock markets later on. Um, so currently, I mean, in that scenario, we're piling on the economic sanctions and, and Putin is still doesn't appear to be changing course, although his, his progress, according to some analysts, has not gone as quickly as he wished. So for no fly zone is out of the question. Economic sanctions are so far not stopping him. What is left then for the West to do? Because in my, in my mind, um, and to play devil's advocate here, I suppose, surely are we not running out of options? Yeah, it's looking pretty bleak. I was reading the Grace Bakley article in the Tribune and I thought something she said sounded quite interesting. So she was saying that um, £68 billion has gone from Russia into shell companies in um, British tax havens in the last 10 years and that one in every 10 houses in London is owned by one of those shell companies. So, you know, the extent of the, you know, the laundering of that money in, in England um, is really shocking and that there's you know there's a group of about 500 oligarchs around Putin that you know with their wealth and status are supporting him 
um, and that for those people, obviously their wealth is very important, but actually their standing in society is quite important. So to think about maybe excluding those people from the social status, you know, not just the wealth, but the social standing that they've got um, in the West would be very humiliating and painful for them. And I know that's horrible, but so is bombs dropping on Ukrainian people, that's much more horrible. And that if that kind of that kind of pressure was exerted on those people supporting Putin financially and, you know, um, in Russia through society, that could potentially cut through and be, you know, something that could make him take a different course they could exert that much influence over him and I'm not sure there are many things that could I know it sounds I don't know you know it sounds strange saying it out loud but reading it it's kind of resonated with me a little bit and I thought maybe this is something we need to look at it's very interesting because there was talk a few days ago wasn't there of um Abramovich being um some sort of some sort of I mean it, it's it's no laughing matter but it kind of sums up the the almost preposterousness of the world we live in that the owner, owner of Chelsea Football Club who is close to the Russian like this celebrity mediator almost I mean it, it's kind of it's on the one hand it's bizarre but on the other hand it kind of sums up the the state that we're in as as that's been heavily pushed in the media this idea of London grad with this Russian money flowing into London billions and billions and billions of pounds worth of investments in property and and suddenly the the owner of Chelsea Football Club is is somehow the the linchpin which could solve the situation and it, I mean it's really really quite quite bizarre when you view, view it on those terms but that could be the answer I mean money talks we all know this um especially when it comes to Putin and and Russian businessman. What I mean, what's also interesting in this, I'm going to swerve right back around now to Paul. What's also interesting in this is the situation with the gas um, as well, because that's kind of so far been an issue which has been very tentatively addressed by both sides, obviously, because uh, the EU, I think it was, the figure was over 30% of its gas comes directly from Russia, Germany, one of the most reliant on Russian gas, um, up in the close to 50% of their gas comes from Russia. And we have the situation where, for example, the um, blocking of Russia from the SWIFT banking scheme explicitly did not include um, the transactions regarding gas to Europe. Essentially, that pipe from Russia to Europe, that gas pipe is still switched on. Um, and so far, nothing has been done to address that. I saw, I think it was uh, AFP reported today that there's, there's kind of noises off now about how possibly well this coming winter um, Europe could be okay. They'll increase their LNG, their, um, their essentially fracked gas from the US and increase imports of that. Um, there's a um, talk in Germany of how they can quickly scale up renewables. Um, so Paul, on that note, gas being the one, um, one, I suppose, economic weapon in the West's armory they so far haven't utilized, could them shutting off using Russian gas, could that be a solution or would that in turn create economic and social carnage across Europe and is that is that a price too much to bear at present because bear in mind that the dependency of the EU bloc on Russian gas what what are your thoughts on that Paul you're Paul. muted sorry you're in a break mate sorry man I've I, I muted myself on the on the thing so what I was saying is um 
Yeah. <laughs> um, what we need to talk about is is the security of our energy supplies as well. And this really speaks to the fact that we haven't been for a long time thinking about the security of our energy infrastructure. So rather than relying heavily on fossil fuels, we would have done really, really well to have a renewable energy source where um, the Western world or, or, or the rest of Europe or whatever had moved towards renewables in a way where we were self-sufficient. Not only would this be beneficial for climate change, but also you really, really, um, you know, over-reliant on things from, from places like Russia and Russia, you know, you've got all these sanctions in place, but Russia will are still selling gas to the rest of Europe. We're also seeing places like, you know, maybe some countries would be able to cope with this. But if you look at somewhere like Turkey, um, Turkey have got massive reliance on not only gas, but also wheat from um, from Russia and the Ukraine, funnily enough. So will the people of Turkey start to have real, real um drops in the amount of food that is available to them we're an interconnected world and we need to cooperate with one another and we should have been doing this for a long time this has been a long time in the making this energy crisis this you know this aggression crisis and we needed to have some joined up thinking a very very long long time ago about this and hopefully this will leads to something positive like i'm absolutely terrified personally at the moment about this situation i'm really scared that um putin really doesn't care about anyone else whatsoever he doesn't care about any other nation and he probably and he doesn't seem to care about his own people so we're in this awful situation if we can learn anything from it it would be absolutely um vital for us to not look at kind of security by spending billions and billions on things like Trident, but to look at things like energy security and food security and that cooperation throughout the world where we all feel like we need that rather than competing over a limited fossil fuel resources that create billionaires such as Abramovich, which you mentioned earlier on, and such as, you know, Oleg Tinkoff and all these people that are now suddenly celebrity arbitrators between Putin and the rest of the world it's absolutely bizarre it's like a really bad tv show I wouldn't believe this is if it was the plot of a kind of marvel movie I'd say well you know these these villains aren't really that realistic they aren't really grounded in reality I don't know what their end game is but uh this is the situation we find ourselves in Absolutely. Um, and it is, it is very bizarre and it, it does pose far larger questions about how our corporate capitalist system operates and, and how we've allowed ourselves to get into this position in the first place. So I just want to go to some comments and I do want to move the topic on um, because I'm conscious of time. Jonathan Logan says, Germany's view was if they traded with Russia, they could influence through trade. Was this a valid strategy? That's a very good question. Can we note that? And we'll come back to that um, in the second part of the show. I think that's quite important. Um, Britain is the people, the, um, the quite large Facebook account um, who's popped up on Twitter now as well. Britain is the people. Can we talk about the racism issue? Um, the fact that not only do Western media talk about this has happened to blonde head white people, but the blocking of black people from change, yeah, that's emerged. That was on social media for days and days and days ago. It's starting to cut through to the corporate press now. Um, we'll come back to some of those questions later on the show. I do want to move this on because you touched on um, Putin and how this is very bizarre. Um, I mean, essentially, so where I'm sat and where I've been sat for a while and observing geopolitics for quite a while, Putin is um, operates on this MO 
almost now of shock therapy. It's something Naomi Klein coined in her book, The Shock Doctrine, where um, nations post-shock, whether it be economic, whether it be um, physical, violent war, shock to destabilize societies and, and allow changes in societal structures to take place. Um, it, it, it happened to Russia itself at the fall of the USSR. Um, the US imposed economic shock upon it um, and therefore sweeping privatization was brought in. Um, it was the strategy during Iraq. And then what we've seen in the past decade is Putin adopt this strategy as well. It was what he adopted in Syria. Um, this kind of shock therapy to try and um, not, in the case of Syria, destabilise the government, they destabilise the West, actually. Um, and we're now seeing this again, where Putin is doing this, this shock therapy on the population um, to try and batter them down. And we don't know his reasons for it at present, um, but they may well become clear soon. Um, however, there's again, there's a lot of commentary about how well is, is Putin actually losing here because he's not making the progress that um, some analysts think he should have done. He's losing control of the Russian, Russian population in a way that we've not really seen for many, many years in terms of protest, in terms of opposition, even opposition coming from his own oligarchs. China's line on this has been very carefully placed so as they're not overly supporting Putin, um, which again is quite unusual. Um, I want to go to who should I go to first? Jane, um, has Putin is, is Putin losing control of the situation, and and are we seeing a leader and an authoritarian who's growing increasingly desperate? Could this be the way that this may end, or or do you think it, it, this is all part of his strategy and it is going going to plan for him? Don't think it's going exactly as he had, would have planned it or wanted it to go, but I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that he's losing control. Um, I think as, for him, as long as he wins, I don't really think he'll care how many Russian soldiers or Ukrainian civilians need to die to get there. And it's very early days right now. I do think with um, the Russian ownership of um, such a substantial amount of the gas supplies for Europe, such a vital, you know, fundamental thing that Europe needs, that I feel that's a trump card that you know that they can use if things get too hard i think it'd be very difficult for germany and italy if they switched off the russian gas supply i mean that would cause a huge amount of distress to the people in those countries so i'm not sure those governments would be prepared to go down that route um and i i wonder to be honest to what extent it really matters to whether it's not going his way and whether he's lost control because I suspect that if he goes someone just as bad might replace him so I'm not I don't know I don't know if it's a relevant comment to make but in terms of making some good progress for people in Russia um, I don't know if much is going to change for people in Russia and I don't know if the situation for the Ukraine is going to improve by him going um, not that it's good for him to stay but I'm just not seeing a brilliant outcome from this either way. Okay, Mark, I mean, following on from what Jane said, um, this opposition from the Russian people is, is um, quite on a scale never seen before. But do you think that even if this could be Putin's undoing, what will replace him? Is it going to be just as bad? Because bear in mind that the country, even after decades um, out of the mould of the USSR, it's still this kind of authoritarian 
regime. Um, it, it's not, it, it's in no way, shape or form a democracy. And if Putin was replaced, um, is it going to be any, actually any better? What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on that? I haven't got an. I haven't got a clue what would replace him at the moment. I mean, the, the simple fact is, all we know of is Putin, and 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 I think Jeremy was. I think he was Jeremy Corbyn was talking to some people and said we should reach out to those on the left to see what there actually is in 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 Russia to be, because we need to be internationalists on this. We need to support each other, and I don't think it would be the left. We've got to understand this. The uh, more um autocratic side of, of the Russian system will be there and I'm sure there is somebody there to replace Putin uh, will this may cause a crack in his armor there's a lot we've got to realize there's a lot of people who who live in who live in Russia who have relatives in Ukraine who see themselves as Ukrainian I just don't it's hard to say it's one of those things we just um, don't know but Putin is is somebody you can't you can't totally fathom. You can't say is it just uh, blustering. Going back to the nuclear weapons thing, it's it's certain that the U that the US have put they've done exactly the same, but they won't use it as a pissing contest to show, um, you know, oh I'm putting my nuclear weapons on standby. Most people will be. It was said by Paul Rogers on on Tisky last night. It you know it is going to happen. I think it will question what will happen, but let's also, I, I know to go, I'm going away with it from what you were talking about, but let's remember, a lot of these people in Russia are being arrested under powers, which Boris Johnson is now at the last stage of the parliamentary process to putting into place in the UK. I know this is meant to be about, about the Ukraine, but I think we need to make sure, make that statement that that is now in a matter of month, weeks, if not month, months, if not weeks, is going to be law in the UK. So if we go out on the streets and protest, as we're going to need to do, we could be locked up for a year just like they can. Sometimes it's 10 years. No, absolutely so. And that, and that circles back to what I said in my introduction, that there are the, there are no good guys and bad guys in this. Everyone involved is a bad faith actor, which I know some people in the comments took issue with, but that is my feeling. Um, there's, I just want to read out some comments because um, Samantha, I then want you to address this. Um, Jonathan Logan said on Facebook, obviously there is no justification for attacking Ukraine, none. However, can we understand at all his thinking in relation to NATO? He said NATO has increased in size to combat who? He thinks Russia. Um, Mark on Facebook says, this is war of choice, it's now a war Putin has to win, he must judge the timing and strength of the Ukrainian military and collective spirit of the country, he is now all in, all in, he is desperate and that will cause much more recklessness, his plan has changed and he's chucking a lot more to gain control, which is still possible for him to do. Um, Jacqueline said on YouTube, maybe Putin is acting up like this because the sharks in his own country are circling. Um, there's been this big debate... <sighs> Um, no, I can't even call it debate, rather. There has been a position come out of Keir Starmer's Labour ship that criticism of NATO in this context is essentially now barred from the Labour Party. Um, we saw it with the situation with the 11 socialist MPs last week who had to withdraw their support to stop the war coalition and then um, the crackdown on young Labour. Um, I mean, Samantha, is this... Is this 
criticism of NATO that we've been seeing a lot where, well, NATO has led us to this point and so on and so forth. Is that valid or should it always come with nuance? What do you think about this this line that we're seeing from a lot of people that, well, yeah, what Putin's doing is bad, but, but NATO got us to this point because it's drawn a fair bit of criticism from certain quarters, hasn't it? Yes. Uh, Mark rightly points out that I'm a Labour councillor. Don't worry, I'm not going to hopefully sit. Hope, you know what? I'm going to Might be out of a job by the end of the show. <laughs> that I should be allowed um, to say, um, which is that there is a, a long tradition of um, being a critical friend towards NATO and, and even calling for the abolition of NATO um, in, on the left. Um, and to pretend that there isn't is. is silly because it's just a fact um and i think you know if we've got a broad church of different views then that view might be among the views that, that we have and that we discuss and and you know we shouldn't see discussion of, of these issues as something that that we can't do in an open and honest way partly because people have to learn stuff you know and discussing things is the way that we learn things um would i say that no i wouldn't because again i just don't know enough about it um but if it's something that needs to be looked at it, it's something that needs to be looked at it's something that we need to talk about and swap notes about because unfortunately what we know from all wars and all conflicts is that if we don't learn the lessons of the past then we will repeat them in the future um and we've had such a you know a really unrivaled time of ongoing peace in europe since world war ii and we want to be able to sustain that and the only way we sustain that is by thinking critically and honestly about the power structures that are in place I think that's very true. I, 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 I would question the idea of ongoing peace in Europe, given what happened in um, former Yugoslavia in the late 1990s. Um, but and also what happens when refugees enter this block, which is suddenly miraculously now sorted when it's um, Ukrainian refugees. But that's another another story entirely um, in the comments. Mia says, I always used to think I was anti security. But I'm all for the security Paul speaks of, like energy and food security. I guess the word security has been hijacked by those who think security is about flexing muscles. Um, interesting point, Mia. I want to come on to hijacking, actually, um, not in, in the sense of anything of it, Oz, but, but, but the hijacking of the narrative. Um, because, as I said in the introduction, we know that Russia has been shutting down quite fervently independent media, um, or rather Putin, sorry, has been shutting down quite fervently independent media in Russia. By that same token, the EU has blocked um, Russia Today and Sputnik. Um, we now know that YouTube has taken down RT and Sputnik sites. Um, if you try to access RT.com in the UK, that's gone. Um, but there is a lot of disinformation coming from the Russian side about what is going on. Equally, um, to present a completely balanced view on this, the Western corporate media is, of course, presenting this situation from a Western standpoint. Um, there's also been disinformation and misinformation shared by the corporate media um, as well. Pippa Crea, um, I don't think she's even taken it down. Many, many viewers will have seen Pippa Crea sharing this um, 
Ukrainian army video saying when the information war has started. It was a video from, I think, 2014 um, that she shared, and it, it was completely had nothing to do with this conflict at all. Um, so it, it, it's kind of with regards to the media, both sides are, as they always do, pushing pushing their own agendas. But can either side in this situation be trusted? Can the corporate media of Russia or the corporate media of the West, can we trust those? Or, or have we got to search our information in a different way? Paul, what are your thoughts on the role of the media on both sides as it currently stands in, in this war? Um, so the, there's one side of me that thinks that what you should do is listen to all sides of the media and then kind of we're all grown up enough. I think people would be grown up enough to watch something like Russia Today and pick out what is good about it, what is bad about it, and make their own informed decision. It's almost as if like the idea is that people can't hear an opinion and disagree with it. They will listen to everything and it will be taken in. So that speaks a lot to what our politicians or what our media think about what they're doing. Because if they think they're mere suggestion of a thing. I don't expect everyone to agree with everything we say on this show and I don't expect that to go to be taken at face value. I expect people to think on their own. So I would expect that with anything. So I'm not sure the banning of media is always like it is always a good idea. In fact, it would be very interesting to see what uh, Russia today were trying to put out to the world from a point of view of what is the propaganda that they are they are sharing. But I'd also like to talk about like our historical, um, you know, the the changing of history and so on. And it's like, you know, there's a video out on Double Down News this week. Um, it was by Jeremy Corbyn where he's talking about how he's being painted as a friend of Russia. But when he pointed out that Russian oligarchs were buying the Conservative Party, um, you know, he was hounded even by his own MPs. Oh, this is a disgrace. You can't say that. But that's the attack line. You know, it's certainly before the conflict broke out. People were talking about this a lot in the UK Parliament. You go back to 2003, Putin had already invaded che Chechnya. That was brutal. The way they treated the Chechen people was absolutely brutal. He was given a state visit. Visit. He rode in a carriage with the Queen. You know, these things, uh, but it's been forgotten about. You know, he was invited and he's shaking hands with Jack Straw and, and all these dignitaries and Tony Blair invited him in. You know, we've, we've rewritten history ourselves in this country. The media have rewritten history ourselves. We need to accept our part in this. Like, whether or not they were trying to bring Putin into the, into the inner circle and say, actually, you know, you can be friends with us. You don't need to go to war. Perhaps that would be a valid strategy. But to not admit to that suggests to me that these people are not acting in good faith. I would take, I would go out and find out as much as you can from as many different sources as you can and try to make up your own mind. Um, I don't think the integrity of the press is such that we can trust everything we say at faith face value and I wouldn't expect people to take what I say at face value either go out and find out a little bit yourself make your own decisions we've all got brains use them but that is it like that inquisitive kind of mind where you want to look at different sides and what different people are saying that has to be part of the mix um otherwise we're just being fed whatever one person tells us one person's opinion isn't a fact no, absolutely. And, and the, that's a very interesting point, especially surrounding the historical context, um, because both sides, again, are doing the same thing, especially as you pointed out re regarding Western corporate media and, and Putin's um, 
previous, I suppose, incarnations in terms of his relationship with the British state. Um, I mean, even Tony Blair praised him in 2020, didn't he? Um, which which um, most people, Tony Blair's been very quiet, oddly, um, throughout all this. Um, Blair was praising him as recently as 2020. Um, Mark, what do you think? Is it right for, um, I don't suppose right is the correct word, actually. Let's phrase it slightly differently. Um, is it to be expected that the West um, and particularly the EU has outright banned Russia today, um, because whether or not it's right or not remains to be seen. We can come onto that with you in a minute. But do you, was that to be expected? Was this always going to happen that they would try and get control of the narrative via the media? Well, it, it certainly is. It's what they're doing. It's, it's what they're, they're trying to cut down on independent media on on uh, Facebook. I was reading an article. I think it was from another angry voice. Uh, they were talking about how the algorithms have been changed. So please follow us. Follow by wire and everything to make sure you're getting a, a balanced uh, th thing I, uh, I I was actually watching not the, I'll get my teeth in as well I was watching not the Andrew Marr show on Sunday morning and they had um, uh, Rosh Ashcroft from Renegade TV and he was actually he actually is a, does a syndicated show what that means is basically he sells it to other to other other networks and another and basically, he was offered a, a contract by another more well-known BBC pro, uh, provider, but they wanted so much control. Russia today are completely hands-off. I think I think sometimes you always have to say, if somebody's going to ban something, you need to find out why. And I found that, being, as I'm the, one of the token Christian socialists here, I often question people, why are you saying that should be banned when, when I'm in with some of the more right-wing, more traditional ones, and say, why? Why is that wrong? Where is that wrong? It says test all things, and that's what you must do. Too many people in in the UK believe that our our our, our broadcast media is gospel, and we shouldn't. And that's very true. And, and I mean, if you look at the data surrounding media use in this country, um, Ofcom's research in 2021 showed that across both television um, news, across social media news and across website visits, the BBC was still the most used news source across every single medium still, although its impact and reach has been reducing as as people search out different different avenues to find out their news. The BBC, still, BBC is all still powerful in this. Samantha, I'd be interested to hear your, your thoughts on that. I'm, I'm going to make the presumption, so please tell me if, if, if it's the mother of all F-ups, um, but I'm going to make the presumption that you've been watching BBC News. I mean, how throughout the past week, how do you think BBC News has been doing with regards to its coverage? Has it been... Um, presenting sides impartially, or has it been essentially working for Western agendas? How have you found the BBC's coverage throughout this? I found, and and it's always going to be emotional. I could, it's always going to be emotional. Um, but I I really feel like it's they're trying to hit people with this really unbearable sledgehammer of emotion um i've got people who people are, as a politician it can be quite difficult to get people to look at what's happening around them in the world sometimes and i've said 
I've come across friends who don't usually engage with the news at all, but they've they've fallen onto the BBC news and they just can't process it. They can't cope with it, and it's it's affecting people really really strongly. Um, so I think um, it, it's impossible to think rationally when you're feeling those strong emotions, and I wonder how helpful that is. That's a really interesting point. And I, th I think we, and we've been on this almost, uh, and I, I, I don't like this terminology. I always think it's very kind of X factor, um, but we've been on this roller coaster, this kind of 24 hour media roller coaster for far longer than just the past seven days. We've, been, we've all, or the majority of us, of us have been consumed by it since the coronavirus pandemic started, really. I mean, this has been, this has been ongoing for several years now and the, and the BBC has been, has been almost instrumental in that. Um, it was still the most watched channel throughout the pandemic, um, and it's, 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 it was still the most watched channel towards towards the end of last year. Um, just to sort of um, tie up this section, and then we'll move on. Um, Jane, I mean, what are your thoughts on how the corporate media outside of the BBC have been playing this? Because it's kind of turned into war by social media almost especially again as i talked spoke about earlier looking at today on social media all these prominent commentators calling for a no-fly zone essentially uh, facing accusations from many people on both the left and right interestingly dominic cummings for example has been very vocal in his opposition to people who are calling for a no-fly zone um would you think we will look back and reflect that the western media overall played a a positive, well, as positive can be, role in this situation, or has actually the Western media fueling this, and as Samantha said, getting us all of us caught up in this emotional roller coaster of of war with twenty four seven news and social media constantly down our throats? And will we reflect that actually we need to start questioning how the media portrays conflict, or do you think the Western media is going to come out of this situation still with its reputation intact? I think it will come out with its reputation intact amongst the general public. I think there, there is good side to the coverage we've been getting in that people are seeing what's happening and they're aware of this conflict, the, the coverage that a lot of other terrible atrocities happening in the world don't get. Um, so I'm glad that this one is getting that and that people are seeing how horrific it was. It is rather, I'd like to think that that would bring home to people just how terrible war is and make us think a little bit about our place in the arms industry in the world. I'm not sure that that will happen. I have felt a little bit uncomfortable. Um, just a few, I've caught a few news programmes on TV and it might be a terrible when I'm fair thing to say, but I have just had a creeping feeling that maybe they were revelling in the drama of it just a little bit too much. And I've caught two lunchtime news shows on tv the last few days and in each one of them with these terrible atrocities happening in the uk with you know potential nuclear war and people dying they both asked um do you think jeremy corbyn's too soft on putin and i just kind of thought who cares what jeremy corbyn's thought or said about putin because he was never in power he's not in power now he's not even leading a position now what is this weird obsession why are you riling people about this 
but you know you'd have to be a pretty lazy journalist to look back and suggest such a stupid thing anyway it's quite the opposite um and the le- just brings home to me reminds me the lengths that the media have gone to um to spread so much disinformation um and whitewash this tory party which is taking money from the oligarchs that are popping up putin um and is waging this war of um on our civil liberties at the moment that doesn't get any coverage what's happening to people in guantanamo bay doesn't get any coverage what's happening to junior assange doesn't get coverage the evil crimes that he published don't get any coverage so for me i think the it's just reinforced for me how awful the mainstream media is but i do think they'll come out with the general public feeling pretty much the same way about them as they did before because people just don't know these things are going on i so in my opinion on this i think there's an extremely good assessment of the situation unfortunately in a sort of corporate capitalist society we've become extremely conditioned um, because of the rise of the internet, because of the rise of 24 News, um, because of the complexities of all our lives now, we're conditioned to, um, I think someone said it in the chat, actually, um, yeah, um, people want information, not sensationalist headlines or sound bites, says Jacqueline Hemmings on Facebook. Unfortunately, Jacqueline, I think what's happened is in this, this age of tech um, and 24-hour news and social media, and when you've got all the other pressures in life, most people just get snippets of news these days because time poverty is a huge factor, financial poverty is another factor, and people just literally pick up a snippet from the BBC, something from maybe a paper, something from websites, and their judgment is based on that. And I, and I think I completely agree that the corporate media, despite propping up the Western narrative in this in the same way that Russia's media is popping up the Rash- Russian narrative in this, both entities as ecosystems, Russian media and Western corporate media, will still come out of this intact. I'm sure there'll be lots of awards, even though actually, as um, Paul said at the beginning of this segment, the history of this situation and the nuance of it as well has been completely lost. Um, to most people. I just want to um, go through a couple of comments. Something to that bit, where is it? Um, it's Laura. Actually, hello, Laura, again. Um, sorry you can't be here. She said that um, sometimes you just need to switch off and put on MasterChef, but she caveated with the point that we are very fortunate to be in that position, that we can just switch off um, from it, of course, because this isn't currently directly affecting us. Um, Britain's people do not watch TV news. Your mum was right. It will rot your brain. Um, yes, I, I think um, and there's there's merit to that point. Britain is the people to be tactful. Um, all we have is headlines. Nobody has the capacity for more yet. Britain's people. Exactly. That's exactly my point. And the system has designed us like that now, unfortunately. With regards to that, so that all we have capacity for is headlines, that brings us on to what I want to finally talk about, because this may have escaped most people, uh, certainly hasn't escaped me. Um, what we've seen literally in the past two days is the end result um, and the ultimate motivation behind war, if you like. And that is the fact that just in the past few hours, it's come out that oil has peaked at $100 a barrel, Gold is at a, a high since I think the, the start of this 
this decade. And of course, what's also happened, we have seen the share price of arms companies go through the roof. Lockheed Martin, Raytheon have hit 52-week highs. Um, BAE Systems share price has hit a historical high going back to when it was privatised back in the, um, I think it was the 1990s, I believe. BAE Systems became a fully private operation. So, of course, share prices are through the roof, as always, while people are being slain by Russian forces on the ground in Ukraine. And historically, when Western forces have been slaying people in far-flung countries, um, think they think is partly out of sight to us. The only winners are the richest people, whose share prices are all going through the roof, making them all a lot richer. Um, how many times have we been here before? Because I seem to recall, and I've been on Twitter like quite a while now, every time there's a conflict, this same pattern happens. <laughs> every time you can bet money, ironically, on the fact that if you go and check the defence manufacturer's share prices, whenever there's a threat of war, they go through the roof. Somebody's getting a bonanza somewhere. And of course, all these arms manufacturers, manufacturers are then also owned by shareholders in this self. Um, the likes of State Street Corporation, um, all these huge institutional funds um, which buy up little portions of other companies all make an absolute booming profit out of this. And it happens every time. And yet we don't seem to learn. And we keep seeing the same pattern. Um, one super power starts a war and the only people that ever benefit for, from it are the world's richest people. Um, Paul... Why do we not learn this and why do we keep electing people who make this happen? Does this tie into what we were talking about previously with regards to the corporate media and how it frames things? Does it tie into the fact that actually maybe most people don't care about what happens in other countries as long as it's not happening over here? Why do we keep making the same mistake and keep allowing leaders to be elected and put into power that then do this and the only people that benefit are the richest people on the planet? I was thinking about this earlier on and I put a post on Facebook about it actually. Um, what I think's happened is we've managed to generate a situation where the worst kind of people end up getting power. So we've, since since the 80s, probably, probably way before that, probably going way back in history, um, we've always had this situation where greed is good um, and you know, in, in individualism, that's the important thing, like Thatcher's comments on, you know, there's no such thing as society. You've got all those all those things and this narrative that we've been fed for years and years from the media, from our politicians, that actually you need to look after yourself and, and but most people actually want to be part of something bigger. Most people, you know, humanity's only got where it is through collaboration. That's our that's our major thing, actually. Like if you if you look at from an anthropological point of view our big thing is the fact that we can cooperate really well with each other and normal people want to do that and most people want to do that and most people are good and most people are willing to support one another but our system where we focus on individualism allows people who are simply ambitious, greedy, powerful to get to the top and they seize that power and then they and then they run our lives and this is what's happened in the in the case of Putin He's managed to get to the top of it and, and hold so much power, so much wealth. And even when even when sanctions have been hit on Russia, that his personal wealth isn't going to be affected. He'll have that offshored. His personal wealth will be absolutely safe and sound, and so will all of his allies. And we've we have this situation in so many different countries. Um 
and they'll pick and choose, as you say, with the with the media, they'll pick and choose what we see. And a lot of us have incredibly busy lives and you just want to have a tiny little fraction, like Laura mentioned, a tiny little fraction of happiness in your life because we're entitled to that, aren't we? We're entitled to enjoy our lives at times. So people don't have time to go out of the way to find out about what's going on in Palestine. I talked to my colleagues um, and they didn't have a clue that Yemen was being bombed by Saudi Arabia with, um, with well, alleged tactical help from the US and the UK. Um, and they, they have no idea that, this, that Saudi Arabia are doing that, but they do care. They think it's an awful thing. They, they, they think that all these bombings and all these airstrikes around the world are absolutely appalling. They simply aren't being given the information. Um, so we've got a media and a system that just allows the wrong people to seize power. What we need to have is we need to have bottom-up change. This is what I'm hoping for in Russia. I'm hearing a few little reports, and I'll put a link in the chat, that the military, and I think this is this is our only hope, really, the Russian military are starting to look at this and thinking, we are not this redeeming force. We are not this. Li we are not liberators in Ukraine. We're the bad guys. We're going in and doing these things. There was an awful harrowing uh, story I, I read about um, a Russian soldier who'd sent. Uh, he said, "The only thing I want is a rope to hang himself." When he when he'd sent a message to his man, when he realised what evils they were committing in that country. So perhaps the people, and that'll include the military in um, in Russia, will realise what's going on and rise up and take control. The people need to have power. Power needs to go back to ordinary people, ordinary communities, because when it goes to the people who have benefited from our really, really awful top-down system, they're, they're abusing that power. And we're seeing this time and again, and they've been doing it for years. They've been doing it throughout history. And we really need to change that. Otherwise, the, the only outcome is, uh, is disaster. No, I absolutely agree with everything you said, and especially um, I've written about it a lot on this notion of individualism. Um, I believe it stretches back further than the, the Thatcher era. I believe that actually as a species, we almost have a, our societies are almost based on it. And they have been since the dawn of early civilizations in terms of that we've always lived in these hierarchies where, well, 99.9% .9 of the time lived in hierarchies with a few exceptions. Um, where a few people control what the rest of us do. And we've constantly been encouraged as a species to covet thy neighbor's ox, um, to, to want more, to have what other people have got. And that's a pattern across history. And it's almost within our, our DNA now, I believe, that we're so driven by material wealth and greed, even if we don't realise that we are, um, that and now in it's coming to a to a head not least with the climate catastrophe but with this perpetual cycle of war we've seen for the past few hundred years but that's not that's for another show entirely my thoughts on the anthropology behind that i just want to address a point in the chat um jonathan logan said um to me specifically are you suggesting putin invaded ukraine to boost his bank balance um no jonathan i'm not what i'm suggesting is all these bastards are disaster capitalists who they see an opportunity to make money as historically they always do um and they grab it by by with both hands um so just to clear that up mate no of course i'm not um mark um i'm interested in your thoughts because um paul referenced the fact that maybe the people in russia will rise up but we kind of in the uk we had that opportunity with Jeremy Corbyn um, and and it, it did not materialise for various reasons, which a lot of viewers might well be aware of, not least the corporate media again. 
Um, but we kind of had the opportunity over here and with the systems of power as they are, that never happened. Um, do you think that there will come a time where actually the people can, for maybe the first time in history, properly take back power from a very small clique of people who, who, who govern over us? Or are we ever doomed to live like this in a perpetual cycle of war and greed and malice and discontent? One could never give up hope for this happening, but you've got to understand, if you just think about what we went through from 2015 to 2020, when sadly Jeremy stood down, it was all, oh, if you get this Jeremy Corbyn in, the sky's going to fall down. You know, there's so many people who just have got the, the idea that, you know, if these people, if Sir Topham Hatt is in, in, his, in his place, it won't, it won't... Um, it won't the world won't work i'd lo i hope it will i hope one day we will get so far that we will that, that, that people will say say enough but are are, are 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 we now back into a feudal society and if you look at the laws that are being passed in this country to to try and stop us taking but really taking back control I'm interested. You say, are we back to a feudal society? I would argue that maybe we've never really left one um, because we've always, as, as especially in this country, had a tendency to be completely subservient to those yeah. in power. We aren't really revolutionaries over here. Um, and we've had this perpetual feudal hangover almost. But um, again, that's that's for, a, for another show. Samantha, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, given you are, are a... Labour politician, um, based on the fact that obviously what happened with Corbyn happened, in my opinion, we need to move on from that. That is now the past. Um, do you think that party politics is still the way to actually implement true democracy in this country, given you are a Labour Party politician, but given what happened to Corbyn, is party politics still the answer? I think, um, I mean, Certainly what happened uh, with Jeremy Corbyn opened my eyes to the role of money in politics. Um, the fact of the matter is the night before Poland Day, outside my house, not I t not targeted as me, but on the road outside my house, there was a, a poster put up that basically implied that Jeremy Corbyn was a paedophile. Would you trust this man with your children? Him in a, like a Russian looking hat. Um, saying that um, Jeremy Corbyn wanted to make it illegal for people to have a... Uh, oh, what's that thing when you die and you give somebody else your money? Inheritance. Inheritance, there you go. It was going to make inheritance illegal. Um, and it was just... And they had the, the little, like, trucks with the thing on the back saying the same thing. And that was all very shady, wasn't it? Like, it was funded by another campaign group, which wasn't the Conservatives. It was called Campaign Against Corbyn. And, and the same... It had the same thing with the uh, really alarmist uh, social media ads about what was going to happen to private landlords if Jeremy Corbyn got in, in power. Um, and the influence on on the electorate, you know, is incalculable uh, for those kinds of things. And and again, going back to people being unable to make rational, like when you're in that fight and flight fear mode in your head, you literally can't think, you you know, you that your brain is literally just, I need to survive, what do I do to survive? Um, and I know of people who were told by their employer 
that if Jeremy Corbyn got into power, then the business was going to fail because Jeremy Corbyn was a communist that hated business. Therefore, if you want to keep your job, you need to vote for the Tories. That will, that's what we're up against. Um, and unfortunately, I, you know, I think, I feel like I don't see a way past that I don't see a way to freeze those influences out of politics in the future and that makes me very depressed because it makes me think we're never going to get um, the type of government and the type of society that I actually want so we've got to go for the next best thing um, which is why I am a Labour Party politician because that is the only realistic closest way to the society that I want to live in. I think you made very interesting points. Um, I, I, I'd, I'd politely disagree with you on um, um, taking second best, obviously, um, but, but I would say that because I'm probably a borderline anarchist um, <laughs> rather than wedded to party politics. Um, Jane, obviously, I mean, we're talking about the UK just now in this context. Obviously, we have to, we should all recognise an extremely privileged position in this country in some respects, even with the awful, awful, awful government we currently have and the one that preceded it and the one before that and the one before that and the one before that. We are we are in a very privileged position over here, but but globally that's not the case for many people. Um, I mean, to loop it back to Ukraine, um, what, what is the best way that we can give the people in Ukraine as individuals from this country, what is the best way that we can firstly give them hope, but also secondly support them whatever happens. Because um, currently I'm seeing a lot of chatter on social media and people are saying donate to Ukraine's military and so on and so forth. What can we actually do? What's the most productive thing that we can do over here? And then I'm going to ask this question and go around everyone else as well. What's the most productive thing we can currently be doing over here to support people on the ground in Ukraine, do you think? Oh, that's so difficult because... I I don't know what we can do individually, really. Obviously, to sign the petitions, try to lobby the government to do some to have a properly decent package for refugees from the Ukraine. Um, but it's so hard to think of something that's actually going to give concrete support to people who, you know, are. I spoke to um, a few days ago, and I mentioned it to. Um, my friends at Socialist Think Tank. Um, my husband was speaking to someone that he knows in the Ukraine and he was telling him, um, it must have been about one o'clock in the morning in the Ukraine and he said his wife and his mother and child were in the air raid shelter and he was out, he was in his apartment block guarding it from, you know, in case the Russian soldiers came. And I just thought of this poor man waiting for the Russians to come with their guns and their tanks because that's their home and that's all they've got. And I just don't know what we can do. I mean, what on earth can we do to help in that situation except from stop this war, but how do we do that? And I know that's an awful answer to your question, but the most important thing right now is those people and what they're going through. We just need to do something and I, I don't know what to do. There's, but that is the answer to the question, that what do we do? And that was kind of the point of this whole final question, that we keep being in the situation we say about Yemen, we said it about the people in Syria, we said it about Afghanistan, we said it about Iraq, we said it about Somalia, we're now saying about Ukraine. 
Um, this keeps happening and we don't, as a species, seem to be able to lift ourselves, emancipate ourselves properly out of the quagmire that we've created for ourselves ultimately. And we, and this conversation is the same every time. We in the West, in our positions of privilege, feel helpless to do anything. Um, but we need to reflect, I think, hardly hard after this event on really what we're doing in this country by allowing these people to be elected in the first place um, in our sphere of responsibility. Um, Paul, is there anything you can add to that? Anything concrete that us and viewers at home could do? Is it just a case of, I mean, someone's put in the chat, gets to the Stop the War March, um, which is happening on Sunday, I believe. I think um, for me, what we have to do is we have to stop demonizing people. And this is a very interesting one. Like I've, it's inter I'm a teacher and I've heard people saying things in, in the, the, students and they say oh i'd be on fighting on the ukraine side on ukraine side and others saying oh i want to join the russians i want to fight it's very very strange it's almost like the like that brass eye mentality where they had that war episode where they and very similar to like kind of the when they had the coverage of iraq and then they parodied that on brass eye when they when they went to war people are really intrigued by this and they are picking sides they're kind of there is not a side in this one other than there's there's leaders who are taking people into awful positions and there are working people, there are working class people who are dying and who are being disordered. And like, you know, there's the um, Ukraine are reporting that over 5,000 Russian soldiers have died. Russian soldiers that have been told that they will go in and be a liberating force, they'll be welcomed, people will be cheering as they go in and they've got their... And they've they found out they're the enemy. They're the bad guys. They're doing awful things. What we need to do is to those people, they're the ones who are going to change it. The only people who can really change things are people like the, the, the Russian army, the working class of Russia. One of my favorite stories of all time was in, it was uh, during the revolution um, when word got to the front lines in World War One of the Russian revolution. The Russian working class people put down their guns, embraced their German enemies as brothers, and said, we have no quarrel with you, we're the same. And they went home. That's all I can possibly hope for in this situation. And we've got to allow situations like that to happen. We can't be going around saying all Russian people are bad. I'm saying, like, I'm saying interesting things around like Russian athletes and so on, like uh, Pavel Sivakov, who's a, a Russian cyclist, has condemned his country's actions. That takes bravery. That means his family could be in danger. So, like, you know, Russian people, the Russian people who are protesting, there are good people wherever you go in the world. This is not a race thing. <laughs> you know, this is not like they're not a different species. We're all the same species. We're all capable of amazing things. We're all capable of good things. And um, that's what I would try and do. I would try and keep the door open for diplomacy. We're not really with Putin. He's not going to do diplomacy. And uh, we're going to have to have a lot of support from the Russian people here. Um, so that's, I guess, that's why I would say keep the door open. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant summing up. And and and, and, uh, and I think um, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Look, I believe we're going to take a break now. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to have a look through some of the comments. Because um, I can't keep up. Um, so I hope <laughs> someone else has been. Um, so let's take a break and we'll be back in a few minutes and we'll talk through some of your comments and see what everyone's saying on social media. Okay. 
we're back in the second half and you've got me. I am covered in pancake mix. Because <laughs> I literally like got the kids in, made pancakes, ran off to another meeting, then ran back in for this one. Um, so that's that's that tells you everything you need to know about me. Um but we will get back to the actual subject and the actual um comments that you put in the chat. Thanks so much. We've had a lot of really well thought out comments today. Uh, something that occurs to me recently, um, look, I can't, I, even I am finding the news coverage too much, uh, but the, some of the things that I've caught from internal UK politics, which obviously is taking a, a back seat in the news at the moment, I've heard two mentions of Boris suggesting, oh, you know, we can put sanctions on Russia, but it's going to cause problems for us down the line, but it's going to cause um, prices to increase. And I just, just want to sort of add a word of warning. Do not let him blame this conflict for the cost of living uh, crisis that's coming down the road because yes yes it's not going to help but it was coming anyway don't let this is very much and it's cynical and it's actually disgraceful that he's clearly laying those breadcrumbs uh for trying to save his own political skin so just keep an eye out for that um because as we said earlier on in the show not everybody's as clued into what's going on in the news as we are because people don't have the time to listen and see what's going on. And 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 if you do hear your friends start going, oh, well, yes, well, gas and electricity is going up, but, oh, it's Putin's fault. We want to be able to call them out on that because it's absolute rubbish. Um, okay, but let's go to your very good comments. And let's go right back to the beginning, the first one that... Um, was was brought out that we didn't get a chance to talk about uh, from Jonathan. Germany's view is that if they traded with Russia, they could influence through trade. Is this a valid strategy? Uh, well, let's give let's give uh, Mr. Topple the first uh, <laughs> first go on that one. What do you think? I think it's, it depends on what you describe valid as being. I mean, in terms of bear in mind this strategy, especially with Nord Stream 2 and Germany's um, determination to push that through, even when um, other EU member states were being, ranging from being cautious to being outright against it. This debate has been rumbling for years and years and years. Um, bear in mind that kind of strategy is peak um, mutti, as it were, then peak Angela Merkel in terms of dressing up what was essentially rampant corporate capitalism in terms of that she was far more concerned with um, the price of gas for her country and relations, economic relations with Russia than the potential long-term implications of that. Look, I mean, I, I'm not, um, I'm sure if I searched on my Twitter, I'd be called a Putin apologist somewhere or another um, because I've been on RT loads of times, so on and so forth. But as I've repeatedly stated, I'm under no illusions about Putin and why Germany would think that um, you can play in a shark tank but not get bitten, is anyone's guess, um, to be perfectly honest. But again, of course, uh, of course, the reasons for that are, are profit related and, and, and economic. Um, so, no, I think it was probably a failed strategy from the off. But of course, I mean, it's 
as Paul alluded to in the early part of the show, this is the globalised world we live in. And the bigger issue here is the very nature of the society we've created, this globalised, interconnected world where if one country fails, the knock-on implications are so many of us fail, where we're so reliant on... Um, imports and labour from other countries and this is not a sort of Brexiteer kind of position I'm taking it's a case of that we've become so so interlinked that when something like this happened the faults in the system are really exposed um, and it, it's capitalism and, and imperialism and colonialism by the West that's done that this isn't some post-World War II phenomenon this stretches back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years um, and I think the situation with Germany and their, their attempts to, um, I suppose, their relations with Russia via trade are a perfect example of this. It, it's just this same, same story that, that has borne out century after century after century. And as I was saying at the end of the last half, we never learned from this, clearly, because we're where we are now. Thank you very much. Uh, Mark? Do you think that we can successfully maintain and, and put power on Russia through trade? Well, trade is a method, but as, as, as Steve has already said, it's just you're playing in a, in a shark tank. It's just not going to be something that you can really get any any kind of kind of power over. But you've got to think if if you... It's like with, with the whole... Um, the one thing that's not being sanctioned, gas. Why isn't that? Because people will need it. Um, but we need to move away from it. Because if we're not going to sanction gas, what's going to be the effects? Sanctions, though, are going to cause effects to the ordinary people, not the oligarchs and what have you, that we need to be aware of, that, that, that are, going to cause, are going to be the movers and shakers. I don't think you can... There is an, an argument for it, but not that much. What about you, Paul? And sanctions. Well, it's it's the argument is we can use the fact that we do trade with Russia to influence them, isn't it? Yeah. Um, countries need to have relationships with one another. To be honest, like you know, countries for me are often just lines drawn on a map. Some some actually specifically are, especially in Africa, lines drawn on a map by someone who has no, no knowledge of the area whatsoever. So we should be able to influence one another as human beings. Um, I, actually, I, I actually don't think that Putin cares about trade. I think the people might. So... Mm. Making people's lives worse in Russia is a, is a terrible thing. Perhaps that will make them change their mind about Russia. Perhaps it will polarise them against it and, and say that the rest of the world are against us and they've put us in this situation because of the actions of our leader. Um, so maybe they'll end up not wanting to integrate with the world. It's a re it, These things should have been done a long, long time ago. And, and I guess, like, I don't know, it's we've gone way past the idea of oh well if we buy your gas maybe you'll think think a little bit better of us it, it would be very naive to think that um but again we need to move past the past the binary of russians bad nato good and things like that these ridiculous positions that people are taking now these ridiculous binary splits so we do need to have some sort of relations with the russian people um 
how how that's going to happen from now on i have no idea at the moment yeah i mean something that really strongly occurs to me is how much we seem to have sleepwalked into this situation like nobody seems to have really ever seriously thought about energy insecurity as being a, a national um a national security issue or food security even or just the fact that we just don't make stuff and steal even you know we just unless we can't have a functioning we can't manufacture our own weapons unless we've got steel in this country right it's one of those things so um but also it was a comment on earlier and it's something else that i've heard other people say that that russia manufactures like huge amounts of wheat um which is important for the global food market and 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 again we've just let our agriculture system in this country kind of wither away We've got st- farmers, you know, starving. It's one of the most stressful um, jobs you can have um, because it, it. And again, Brexit doesn't help. You know what what's happened recently, and the idea that we're gonna. Oh, it's just we we've we've got into this situation with this ever increasing globalization where we just don't do anything for ourselves anymore so all we need is one sort of brick come out of that jenga tower and all of a sudden we're in a serious issue um so anyway, i just yeah, can I, I just jump in there i think yeah, there's just two points i want to make firstly i think that we need to view the uk slightly out of the context of the eu because in terms of um, Russian gas, we only rely on 6% of our gas um, coming from Russia. Um, with, we're slightly more self-dependent on those terms. But what you say about globalisation as well, I think it's, it's, it's how globalisation has become as opposed to the idea of globalisation. If, as Paul alluded to, if, we, if these imaginary borders that are drawn up were actually dissolved and... Um, us as a species was globalized truly as we should be, then it wouldn't be a problem. But it's this corporate imperialist, colonialist hangover form of globalization, which is obviously, which is the issue here. And how we move past that now, um, I think absolutely remains to be seen. Is, Is, are we too far gone would be the question I pose to that. Is it too late? Yeah. Did you want to come in on that, Mark, or are you just uh, waving? I was just thinking, you know, we talk about power especially, and we one thing we haven't talked about is we've just gone through major storms, and yet again, people have been cut off. How much would that have happened if we all had solar powers on solar panels on our on our roofs? How many people would have lost their freezer contents, as I've been dealing with for the last last week and what have you? If we had that, we've got to realise that we're using up fossil fuels faster than they are produced. And isn't it, is it not time that we really stopped it? And, and the simple fact is, the reason we use fossil fuels is because the rich can make money out of them. Once they've made money out of the photovoltaic sales or, sales or, the, or the, uh, the wind turbines, they're up on the, uh, and put them up. There's no more money for the rich to make. But sorry, I have to butt in there. I don't think that's strictly okay. true because, as I said in the introduction, if you look at what's already happening, um, Germany are already mm-hmm. essentially implying or rather outright saying 
that maybe the situation with Russia should be an opportunity to very rapidly decarbonize. And what we're going to see, I believe, happen now, this is going to be used again, disaster capitalist opportunity here for the major players in the energy markets like Shell, like BP, rubber, and so on and so forth. This co-opting that we're already seeing of the green movement is going to be complete. So this is going to be disaster capitalist MO number one here, I think, and use this situation with Russia as an excuse for the major multinational energy firms to now um, consolidate their power over renewables. I really think that's going to happen. And we're all, Germany, we're already trying to put that in place as we speak, literally. Um, so I'm, I agree with the argument there's not so much money to be made, but it depends how much control they have over it and how much they're going to charge us. Oh, yeah. well, the crisis in crisis with Russia. Sorry, we'll, 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 we'll do it all with solar power and wind power and hydro power and tidal power, etc. It's going to cost a lot, though. Sorry about that. You know, war, what can we do? But it's like within the UK, you know, now, now, now people who have photovoltaic sales on the cell, on the, on the roofs can't sell what they don't use back to the national grid. It has to go back in for free. That, and that is anti, surely that's anti a capitalist situation. If people make it, they should be able to. And we yeah, need to. Walk capitalism, is it though? <laughs> this, is, this is in no way, shape, or form what sort of Friedman had in mind when he talked about no, liberalism. Um, this is rampant corporatism, ultimately. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, we're it's again. <laughs> no, I was just thinking about that, Mark, is that uh, there is actually the, the local electricity bill, if anybody feels like writing to their MP, um, which is that currently if you do have solar panels and you do make more electricity than you need, you have to sell it back to the, uh, either like let it go, I don't know where it goes, or, or, or sell it back to the national grid at a, a third of what it's worth on the open market um but because there's no legal right for you to ability for you to sort of sell energy to your neighbors um but the local electricity bill would allow us to sell electricity to each other uh, and it's actually a, a beautiful solution for uh, energy poverty. Um, uh, you know, you could have solar panels on community centres that could then supply the, the houses around them. You know, it would be, it's, it's never going to happen because of exactly the reasons that we talked about before. It's not in the interests of the rich people who who keep themselves rich by keeping... Uh, yeah. yeah, what about the billionaires? Who's who's yeah. <laughs> who's who's in the billionaires' corner on this one? Exactly. Um, apart from everyone. No. Yeah, apart from the entire yeah. establishment. And we have to be nice to our billionaires because if we're not nice to them here, they'll just go somewhere else and they'll take all the money with. Them. Off they go. Sorry. Bye bye. Sure you know. Uh, you know. If they, we've done this. Oh, but they'll go. Go. Go elsewhere. Good. F off, in my opinion. Sorry, we've we've been, we've been good so far, and I'll be the one who, who says that. But you know, we need to just say that. Well, ta-ra, goodbye. Yep, absolutely. Uh, but I think, so, do, so Steve, real... were, you, were you suggesting that like um, that the energy companies will somehow like take control of that, or maybe maybe use public money 
in order to create some sort of like power generation facilities and then they will control the selling of it. Like, you know, remember when Jeremy Corbyn suggested that we would have free broadband and you looked at the plans for it and it's actually very, very similar to the Conservative plans. The difference being the end outcome would be private ownership who would sell it to you or simply getting it for free. It was like there was very little difference in the amount of money, public money put in, but a real difference to the amount. Is that the sort of situation you were envisaging where energy companies would have the infrastructure built for them by the public? and then sell it back to the public who, you know, could have got it for free. Of course, well, it's the oldest trick in the book, isn't it? We saw it, 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 the example I always use in recent times was the privatisation of British Rail. Essentially, it was it was the MO for what we're seeing with the NHS now in terms of the, the Tories ran it so much into the ground and there's so much propaganda about how terrible it was. I mean, some of us, I'm old enough to remember British Rail sandwiches um, curling up at the edges and that whole campaign about how terrible the food was. Um, run something into the ground um, saying the only way to save it is by private and private people running it but the public will pay for the infrastructure like has been was set up once british rail was privatized essentially we paid for rail track and the maintenance of the system and um, everyone else would create a profit of it um and so yes i, I believe that will happen and this is it, it seems the obvious disaster capitalist solution to this current issue of energy insecurity um and that that's the textbook way of doing it it always has been um, yeah. that's not going to change um, i think i think we need to realize that what, what johnson is doing to the nhs thatcher did to the railways the only part of the railways that should be privatized is the catering and it should be that there should be multiple concessions on the train to keep the prices down because that what they want is a monopoly yeah exactly exactly so and yeah and the british rail scenario and backstory is always a useful linchpin to be able to demonstrate well look because you've got it all mapped out it's literally the potted history is there with british rail and it's exactly the same as with the nhs and, and utilities will will go the same way i think now tell sid we want our energy back I'm probably <laughs> showing my age now aren't i i'm showing my age that i'm laughing at you <laughs> i feel it's doing wonders i think we were at the same age matey I, I, this is, I've been through too late, just about two Labour governments. Ooh, I'm fully in favour of more food on trains. Um, if that's what you're pitching, Mark, <laughs> I'm, I'm all for it. But, you know, they, uh, they talk about competition and what have you. OK, so let's have two, 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 two buffet cars and they have to compete against each other instead of selling the ridiculous prices that they do. It's like in, like in cinemas and, and, and gigs, you know. <laughs> anyway, I could rant. I'm not going to start. I love it. Stuff. I love it. We'll call it the Mark Longley bill and it's that there always has to be at least two places to buy food. <laughs> two separately owned places, please. Two separately owned places. <laughs> Oh, right. Okay, let's get back down to earth for the last 10 minutes or so. Can we talk about racism? Um, it's, it's not something that's really been talked about very much or at all on the mainstream media. And you could totally argue that this conflict is getting more airtime because the people who are being... 
uh, affected our, you know, white presenting. Um, what do you think about that, Jane? Sorry. <laughs> it's a big question. Don't put on you. Oh, Sal, I'm so sorry. I was reading the comments and I didn't Yay. process it, but what you said, so. It's okay. We're talking about racism, Paul. Um, it's obviously like this is closer to home so that's one thing that like you know maybe you cause a more interest but yeah I think people care um I think our media certainly care more about this being like white people who are close to us rather than like people in Somalia or people in Yemen um who a lot of people in our media don't relate to whatsoever but there is a there's there's another aspect here. There's people fleeing uh, from Ukraine to Poland, and what they're finding is the people of there's a, there's quite a few students of African descent or Africans themselves who are fleeing as well, and they're finding the treatment that they're getting. Some of them. So the Polish people have been absolutely wonderful in many respects and really welcomed them as refugees in a way that I wish our government ha would would do for for people. However, there have been some people who have been victims of racism in this conflict as well, um, and particularly those of African descent. So, um, and uh, Chantelle Lunt, who um, who uh, presented last week, um, I'm sure she had something that we'll try and share later on on Socialist Think Tank. Um, safe passages for people of African descent there as well, because. I think people are just seeing the racism in that in that context of you know we care more about what's going on in Ukraine because of the of the color of the skin. However, we're actually seeing racism involved directly there as well. So yeah, there there are a lot of big problems. Isn't there like there's sort of like um, people from Somalia and uh, various other conflicts that are literally stuck at the border border with Poland. Um, that have, have obviously made it that far and they just won't let them in and, and Belarus I think was the country that they, the, the border they're on the Polar, uh, Poland and Belarus border won't let them back in there so they're just stuck in like a no man's that land between the two borders because they are, have the wrong skin it's very very interesting to hear even on, on BBC, BBC News people mention the people in Palestine this year, this week it's been very interesting to hear that as well. The people are actually now thinking that this is the thing, and it's been also mentioned on Navarra yesterday as well on Tiski. Uh, Jane, do you have any observations now, or just I just I hadn't heard about this, and I'm mm. just so confused by it that this would be happening which probably sounds like a really stupid thing to say because I know we still have huge issues with racism, but I mean. It's just, how can you look at someone, you know, with everything they own in their pockets and, you know, fleeing the sanctuary and decides that they've got the wrong colour skin? It's just, it's so hard to get your head around, isn't it? I don't know. I'm sorry. I, I, I hadn't heard it's yeah, happening and I'm just... It's fine. <laughs> so much really. of this has um, kind of shocked people about what, what is possible, you know, and what happens. Um, do, uh, Steve, do you have anything to add on this one, or 
Yeah, I mean, this has been rumbling on for for days on social media, and as I said at the at the first half of the program, it's only really breaking through to the the corporate media now. But if you check out the hashtag Africans in Ukraine, it's all been documented there about what has been going on in terms of that they've been blocked from getting on trains. Um, to try and get out of Kiev, then they've had to walk physically to the border, the, the border they're being blocked then. Um, look, this is, <clears throat> how can I be tactful about this? Because it is a difficult subject because Ukraine is a war zone, um, but you cannot deny that there is clear underlying societal and institutional racism at play. I would argue what country doesn't have an issue with that? Um, because we're the pinnacle of institutionalised racism in terms of that my dual heritage stepson, um, he's coming up to 16 now, I'm constantly concerned that he's going to get stopped and searched at some point. Um, but what kind of Western countries don't have an issue with racism really and what we're seeing manifesting in Ukraine in terms of that people of African heritage, um, but people of Muslim heritage as well, are essentially being treated as second-class citizens is not surprising. Does that... Yeah, I'm trying to be tactful without, like, going off onto one. Um, okay, major issue, clearly, um, and uh, I would argue what country doesn't have a problem with it. Um, but, yeah, it's blatant institutional racism going on in Ukraine at the minute in some way, shape or form. That's not necessarily all Ukrainians, obviously, um, but clearly at, at best, the system has a problem over there as it stands, but it's a war zone. Brilliant, fantastic contributions, everyone. Um, I'll just read through uh, and give give some of the other comments, um, just something for you to think about. Um, yeah, one of the ones that stuck with me was what Jacqueline said was maybe Putin is acting up like this because the sharks in his own country are circling. I did think when um, it was, it's like what wartime leaders always get like a boost in popularity, don't they? Um, and while we say that there are lots of Russians who are against this conflict, we've got to assume because their media is a lot more controlled than ours, right? The, the, we say that mainstream media has a really strong hold on our population and it's got to have at least the same hold on, on, on the Russian population um, too. So I just think um, I worry about that, that, that actually these political games um, for internal internal fights anyway i am going to round up because um it is quarter to 11. uh so thank you very much steve for coming and guest uh hosting today you've been fantastic i'm sure everybody will agree uh, fantastic comments about you on the stream thank you um and thank you everybody who has commented and liked and shared and and come along um i promise i've clicked like on some of the pages that have popped up as well um don't forget we have actually just a huge amount of content out there paul was very busy during the pandemic creating literally weeks of <laughs> podcasts so that socialist think tank is on youtube it's on twitch it's on twitter it's on any podcast app 
that you can download they're on there and of course on facebook uh so please do go and find us like us share us and you can become a member of socialist think tank for exactly zero pounds and zero pence and uh, that's nice uh, because what do you get for nothing nowadays definitely not very much and even less now than last year because of inflation okay <laughs> so uh, anything you want to shout out for paul yeah, just go to socialistthinktank.com if you want to do that. Catch up on any of our old podcasts. Uh, do share us around. It really, really helps. And thanks, everyone at home, for comment, commenting and getting involved. And uh, trying. We've, I'm sure we've all tried our best to do a, a horrible, horrible topic, something none of us wanted to do, um, as much as some people might be excited about this, this topic. Some of the Warhawks might be... Uh, really enjoying this I'm, i assure you none of us on this uh, on this show are enjoying the situation solidarity to the people of ukraine solidarity to the workers of, of russia who are put in this situation solidarity to anyone who is the victim of conflict and uh you know let's let's stick together and try and change the world for the better okay then bye <laughs> Keep the red flag flying here